Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Deb Roberts and I am the host for season two of the Mind Medicine Australia's podcast. Before we begin with this week's guest, a reminder that Mind Medicine Australia's focus is on the development and the use of evidence-based psychedelic-assisted therapies within regulated healthcare systems. We do not, though, encourage the use of psychedelic medicines outside of this context, and we do not support the use of these substances in any way that is unlawful. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only. None of the content herein constitutes medical advice. Guests' views are their own and do not represent the views of Mind Medicine Australia, and individuals need to discuss their individual healthcare needs with their healthcare providers. Thank you for listening. Well, hello, everyone, and hello, um, Brian Walker. Thank you very much for joining in what I um, imagine is going to be a thoughtful, um, thought-provoking, and hopefully um, uh, content-rich discussion. And so before we um, actually uh, begin communicating with one another and having a conversation, I just Um, often for my sake, but hopefully anyone else that's listening and yourself, just to land, um, I sometimes uncross my legs and put my feet kind of flat on the ground. And I tend to close my eyes if you're running or obviously in movement, that's not going to be possible, but maybe just um, connecting with the ground, the earth that you are on. And um, I often take a few just sighs out. I think that uh, just helps to rid Um, energy that is not um, conducive to our discussion and um, some of the topics that we'll communicate today and allowing just the any residue that is kind of inhibiting us um, to um, just kind of dissolve or at least just let kind of come to a more steady uh, grounded uh, state And hopefully as we now might, um, when you're ready, just letting the eyes either blink open. um, And sometimes I often um, really see kind of almost a different, um, just a different light um, when those, the eyes open. Um, So welcome, Brian. Thank you for coming on to Mind Medicine Podcast. It's a pleasure indeed. And uh, the way in which uh, some of the interviews, um, that I've conducted so far, um, generally speaking, um, we know that we're going to, uh, of course, talk about psychedelic assisted therapy in due course. But um, I find um, a, a question that I'd like to just propose to you um, in just this moment or this time in life, um, you can decide how to answer this. Just was wondering, like what you feel connected to at the moment. In medical terms. In any way, terms that you feel answering, just around, um, you know, the importance of connection. I think we're going to talk about that um, on many levels. But I often just kind of even in this kind of moment, um, you can, people have answered in different ways, but just what do you feel connected to um, at this moment? 
Well, the start of my journey, uh, there's been a couple of moments, but the start of my journey was when I was 13 and I realized I was a healer and that's what, I, what my intent was in life. But another major point was actually in Germany when I left my clinic in tears because for not one single diagnosis I'd made had I found a cause. Plenty of good diagnosis. I'm good at diagnosing and treating, but um, what's the underlying cause? Because if you don't remove the underlying cause, the problem carries on. So we're managing disease to death. And that is not wellness. So my journey began actually in Germany, uh, looking for the causes of, of uh, managing wellness, and the, the causes of leading away from wellness. And that journey has simply gone on and on. And uh, so where I'm at in, in my current uh, uh, healing journey is finding solutions in nature and within oneself uh, on this journey, this inevitable journey towards uh, the next stage of our existence, the transition into death. Uh, what does that mean? But what does life mean uh, in comparison to that? Where are we? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? Uh, so that, that if you like, looking at the, the bigger, the deeper questions and the older I get, the more experience I get, the more important I find these questions. Wow, um, I've been, um, what, the way in which people answer the question, I find it really intriguing, um, um, being able to be, you know, to know at that early age, um, 13, um, and feeling connected to something, right, a, a higher purpose, or, you know, as you said, as healing. Um, I wonder, if, especially for listeners who um, have not had the pleasure of meeting you yet or knowing your background, would you mind um, giving us a bit of background to just um, just introducing yourself in terms of some people don't know um, Brian is a, a GP um, as well as because your previous training in medicine and now in Parliament. But I wouldn't um, mind you giving a bit of background, maybe if you want to start in your early um, years and then kind of bringing us to the moment we are in. Well, I've been a very blessed person. Um, I was uh, born in Malaysia little brother and sister there as well. Uh, so I grew up already in a multinational, multiracial society, speaking well, Bahasa Kabansa and Malay as my first language, which I've forgotten since then. Uh, I've moved, lived, uh, schooled in three continents. I've worked in, uh, well, trained in Scotland. Uh, I've worked in Scotland, England, Germany, Russia, China, Hong Kong, and Australia. Uh, so uh, I've had a lot of experience in different uh, uh, areas. And um, my passion has always been uh, in wellness. I, I thought about becoming a cardiologist, began training for that, and then realized that general practice is so much more interesting. And a lot of general practice is actually mental health, the psychology uh, and mental health. So that, that's really part of what has moved me. And also having a more, how can you put it, a spiritual esoteric approach, uh, the, the existential questions of life are, are best answered, I think, in the communication with the patient one-on-one -on -one and not uh, as a surgeon operating at a table with someone who's out cold. Um, my transition into politics, I'm still a doctor, of course, I must practice medicine still, uh, but my transition into politics was basically a next step rather than one-on-one -on -one within closed doors. I'm actually able to uh, have a, a position on a stage where I'm talking to one in 10,000 or in this case, one in 2 million people when people listen to what I'm saying. Uh, and that means that I can now address the issues of wellness, which is not just having a, a diagnosis. In fact, there's nothing at all to do with that. Wellness is a physical, mental, social and financial wellness, as the World Health Organization defines it. And on that basis, everything that I do in my current iteration has to do with wellness. 
even a, a railway through the Pilbara in the, the, the north of Australia, of WA, uh, will have an uh, effect on, on wellness. For example, traveling through indigenous um, areas. <clears throat> so uh, my anger at being unable to help people return to wellness due to the psychosocial situations they've got, that prompted me to actually become a politician because uh, behind my door with one patient as a lone voice, unattended to, um, unassisted, I can't do anything apart from here's another pill, next patient, please. No, I can have a action on a bigger stage. That's me. Well, that is um, quite a background. I think that opportunity of um, mobilizing um, the, oppor the opportunity to be able to just reach a, a wider and maybe more uh, depth um, in terms of what you can do with um, when we actually can see things on a slightly um, deeper um, angle. And I think that when you're a doctor or when one is a um, medical practitioner, you have this opportunity, this one-on-one, -on -one, as you said, and now with a wider stage, um, how do you, how are you finding it? Um, how are you, from what you thought? And you said, did you say anger? Um, mobile, right. I wasn't sure if you said anchor um, as an anchor, what anchored you or, but actually what angered you. So what is, um, what are you finding now that you've kind of gone um, down this path? How long have you been in parliament? Uh, I'm in three years now. Uh, and uh, there's, Pretty good chances of being re-elected as well. Uh, who knows? Uh, but uh, I think uh, what I've been doing has actually found some resonance uh, in, in the community. Well, my anger, of course, was directed towards uh, things beyond my control. And in fact, nothing is in our control, is it? Uh, who knows? We, the, the best way of maintaining control is by giving up control, I think. Uh, but uh, within Parliament, I, I'm actually the first member in the Upper House uh, since 1971. So uh, for 50 years, there was no medical voice in the Upper House of Parliament in Western Australia, which means that all the legislation that we review, because we don't make the laws, we review the laws that are being passed in the lower house. Every legis le legislation which came through didn't have any medical input at all. So we're getting uh, things uh, uh, in law which don't make medical sense. And so now, for example, uh, I can give a medical input. For example, we recently had <clears throat> the, um, uh, the abortion amendment legislation. Now, uh, your view is one way or the other, but uh, I, as a practicing, uh, practicing medical uh, officer, I have personal experience uh, of, of the issues regarding birth control and abortion. And I can explain things in ways that are not available to people who have never had that position. In fact, I don't think there's another nurse or, or doctor in the upper house at this very moment. So when I speak about, for example, the anguish of a mother losing a wanted child, uh, say, even at nine weeks of pregnancy, and then comparing that to how people assume a woman is going to feel of treating abortion lightly, I can say, well, actually, no, uh, you, you've got that wrong. This is not the way people feel. Uh, so when people are going for something as majors, as no matter what you believe, either on either side of the agree of the argument, uh, you must take into account that uh, people experience it at the sharp end differently to what a politician thinks they think, and uh, they they wanted to, to to tell us how doctors should behave. I said, well, guys, I've been telling medical students this for a long, long time. You want to prescribe to me how to actually be a doctor? 
you know, you're not, you, you've got no idea about this and you want to put words into doctors' mouths. So that, that was shut down because basically what can they say? I've got the experience, I've got the knowledge. So with that, the legislation went through uh, without having unnecessary bits and pieces added to it, which makes it easier for us. And also I had to stand up there for my colleagues who were being basically insulted, uh, impugning that uh, bad intent was uh, present on the path of people who are helping people. Uh, guys, you've got to understand, we doctors, we, we, we value life, we appreciate life, we protect life. To impugn to us the idea that we're careless about life, any life, is actually a huge insult to the whole medical profession. So I was able to speak about that uh, from practical experience. And the same thing is true also of coming upcoming legislation where people's mental health is being looked at. Uh, for example, uh, how do you manage criminals who are needing to be reassociated into, into, into uh, civilization? How do you do that when we don't have enough mental health services for people as it is? So when you're making things more complicated, are we making it more difficult for everybody? Well, yes, you are. Now that went through. I couldn't fix that because the government doesn't take it, doesn't pay attention to what I say. Uh, they may take notice, but they're not going to they have the fixed views. And they're not going to change that. Yeah. Um, well, something you said that in terms of seeing the sharp end. Um, of some of the impacts of uh, in the in the health system, health and service system, um, noticing in terms of the sharp end of um, people who have experienced um, uh, trauma, anguish, mm. um, which are aspects of humanity and being human. Um, one of the you know, listeners know this, but the just we hadn't communicated so about this. But last um, November, my my sister um, ended her life, um, which is really the reason that, of doing this series, to be honest, and working with Mind Medicine Australia. Um, she had certainly been on that sharp end of um, uh, torment, um, you know, anguish, uh, and that uh, pointy end with that sharp end, which you just commented, really kind of uh, struck me, struck a chord. And, you know, the sharp end of and the pointy end of of anguish, trauma, um, mental um, unwellness um, is such a big part of who we are as a society. And I was wondering just generally, um, if you've got some thoughts around, yeah, this pointy end of mental health, um, mental, un, you know, of trying to be in that well-being space, which is what you are giving your life's purpose to. And just I'm sure you've got a, a lot to say about this. How many hours do you have? I've got plenty. Maybe the listener, <laughs> not, but I've got full attention one on one at least our conversation, but it's, um, I am, uh, you know, smiling at the same time, but I think we know, we both know that's a pretty serious um, topic. Well, uh, as you know, uh, my uh, dearly loved son killed himself uh, over a year ago, um, 38 years old, medical practitioner, ED uh, doctor, uh, and for him, the pain was just too much, and he took his life in a very professional, very unforgiving way um and um that's you know that that's that'll be with me for the rest of my life um so i've seen people uh, at that point i remember a man coming into me and he had a rope hanging in his garage saying help me and um i was unable to get him help because 
every place I called for help, they gave me another number. So by the sixth number, I got back to the first place. And no one, no one was prepared or able or willing to help someone uh, in this time of, of severe pain. So here we are as a doctor in your room, one-on-one. This is before I went into politics. Uh, with a man who's desperately ready to kill himself because pain was just too much. What do you do? Uh, so, look, we managed that. I, I got things sorted um, by cobbling things together. By Basically, I, I gave him medication and said, you take this. And I, I flattened him for a while. Uh, but did that cure the problem? No, it didn't. It's still ongoing. But uh, now he's finally got some, some inpatient care. Um, but what it hasn't been fixed is the situations around the reasons why he wanted to take his life. So that'll be with him, I think, for the rest of his life, because he doesn't have access to suitable approaches to, to managing his perceptions. Um, the same thing can be said of uh, a 14-year-old coming in there who also wants to end their life. Um, how do you, with all the hormones going on, with all the, the psychosocial situations at home, how do you fix that? How do you? Uh, now, as a doctor, we, we've uh, got very, well, we do have approaches we can help in some ways, but there's a, a system which is falling far short. Now, I, there's so many things we could say about this. Uh, Mark Butler, who is the federal health minister here, uh, admitted in public, and it was mentioned in the press, that the health service just now is failing, it's collapsing. And then he said, there's not enough money anywhere to fix it. It will collapse. And the only hope is that the green shoots coming up from below will replace the uh, falling system. That's what we've got just now. And the interesting thing I found about that not, was not that he said that, we all know that, I think, but the fact that the media didn't take it up. No one really has appreciated the enormity of the problem we're facing. So what's going to happen is the politicians are going to chuck more money at the problem from left and right until it collapses, and then they can blame the other side. It collapses on your watch, you're to blame. No, the system is collapsing, and the mental health system with it. Now, that's probably the most uh, obvious uh, collapsing area just now. We just don't have the resources we need. Six, eight or nine suicides a day in Australia alone We've got look at the violence coming up, the the fear in our society, uh, the the change in our society from what was a peace loving, uh, uh, generally open friendly society into one where people are existentially concerned that they're not going to be able to exist much longer. Climate change, threats of war, uh, the cost of living, homelessness, domestic violence—all these things are contributing. Okay, and um, the health service collapsing isn't helping anyone at all. We're living with this just now. How do we fix it? Do we fix it? Can we fix it? Wow. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, as I'm listening to you, you know, I you know, you think, OK, well, so quickly I want to go to this, you know, what is the um, what is the solution? What, you know, go from hopelessness to hope and possibility and. Hmm. I know that as an example, some of the options for people who let forgetting the, even the the financial, which is of course something um, as well, but um, the access to choices around um, 
mental well-being, which of course involves physical well-being and as you said from the World Health Organization, you know, how we actually, it's almost the Maslow, you know, hierarchy of need. Mm. Um, so, you know, at the pointy end, um, and which is why one of the reasons we're speaking today, um, you know, people are um, choosing to end their life. Um, and I would argue that they are very unwell at the time and there's choice, there isn't, they don't see hope and any choice, um, you know, that they could, they can see. I know as an example, and my sister lives in America, so this is not just in Australian jurisdiction. Um, The, um, at the time we were looking at psychedelic assisted therapy or psychedelic therapy in a way that um, everything else um, had been tried, residential clinics. She was on 12 medications when she ended her life. the lots of different residential clinics over the years, et cetera, on lots of different um, medicines and TMS and EMDR and, you know, a lot of the things we can kind of check off, um, so to speak, in terms of trying first line treatment. And then now for psychedelic assisted therapy to be given the go ahead potentially in for treatment resistant depression, um, as well as MDMA for PTSD, um, allowing a choice not to be looking at it as a magic bullet um, by any means, but I guess I'm just talking about that as a basis around choice. She was already not, she hadn't, um, she had lost hope by the time we were looking at um, psychedelic assisted mm-hmm. therapy. But I, the reason I bring it up is that legislation, she would have really had to have done it not in the legal framework other than Oregon and Colorado, which at the time, you know, were um, opening up um, that possibility, but it was too late for her. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what your thoughts are around, um, yeah, just the legislation change it for psychedelic assisted therapy um, and plant-based medicine itself. Interesting. I think um, when it comes to options uh, or uh, finding a solution that, we have to recognize that with mental health conditions, one of the problems we're facing is that the thought processes are not uh, solid. Uh, it's led in ways which are very dark. And uh, so all the good ideas we give, think about this, do this, uh, it doesn't really work because the, the brain just doesn't compute. So medication is an essential part of, of treatment. However, uh, we also need to be aware, uh, first of all, that we do have options. We always have options. Uh, and we are free to choose those options. And so it really is about uh, reclaiming your personal sovereignty. This is my body, my life. I choose what to do. And uh, you don't tell me what I can or cannot do with my body, which includes also, do I use psychedelics or not? But also, I want to do what helps me, not what you think helps me. So um, it really is about uh, becoming sovereign not in this political sense, sovereign citizens, but becoming people who are able to exert control over their own lives. Because one thing is absolutely certain, if you've lost control, you're going to get anxious and stress. Uh, Because uh, anxiety is always a perception of loss of control. So uh, that's the first thing. But you can't really go that pathway until your brain has settled. If your thoughts are going all over the place, how do you actually focus on what should be done? So it's a a two-path process. 
When it comes to medication, one thing I can say is, let's let take PTSD, for example, the current psycho psychiatric medication for PTSD is useless. Um, you can sedate people to the point of not being able to do anything. You can make them uh, zombies, if you like, but they are not going to be functioning members of society. They're not going to be functioning members of a family. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to lose their spouse. They're going to lose their children. Uh, and they're going to end up uh, homeless, uh, deprived. Uh, there's a whole host of bad things which happen when, when you uh, are in that horrible situation simply by doing what doctors think is the right thing to do. The 10-year survival, I think, for PTSD is not great. Uh, and also the quality of life. For some, it works. For some. If you take psychedelic-assisted therapies, we know, the studies are there, one single treatment with appropriate psychology gives you a 50% immediate cure rate, 85% in six months. So the question then arises, how come are we not getting access to this? And the answer? The answer is the fear of bureaucrats and politicians. We're going to put barriers in place because it might be damaging. As if the treatment we're giving now isn't damaging enough. But we've got one of the major problems I see in our society is status quo thinking. We're going to do more of what we've done in the past and hope it gives a better outcome. The status quo, all of our political life, the, the bureaucrats behind the politicians are the ones who are maintaining the status quo. They're paid to maintain the status quo. Innovative thinking is actually not a good idea if you're in the bureaucratic services. So we're not going to get change. Uh, simply by knocking on the door of politicians and saying, make a change, please, this makes sense. It doesn't. And also, you have to realise that from the political side, truth doesn't matter. It's the perception of truth which matters. And so this narrative creation and control of the narrative so that I can retain power. Dealing with these people is actually not the way to go forward. It has to be from the people. So when you're asking about psychedelic assisted therapies, the power has to come from the people who demand that the politicians do what's good for the people, not for their particular political careers. Serve us. You're, you're there to serve us. And this is something we need to get in the minds of people. You need to be more active. You need to be more responsible. You need to take more of a personal interest in this because your politicians are actually causing the problems. We need to ensure that the ones we choose don't cause problems. And that, that's, a, that's a big ask. But when it comes to psychedelics, let's look at the, the, the bigger question. Can nature be uh, the solution? And the answer is yes. I have to say, I can kill you quite nicely with nature. There's a lot of good natural poisons out there. Okay, So, so nature is not uh, a substitute for safe. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to, say, the psychedelics, like, for example, psilocybin, compared to other antidepressants, much safer, much more effective. Let me talk about psychedelic as being descheduled from 9 to 8, S9 to S8, which means it can be prescribed. Yes. But they've also made it impossible to get. For example, we have one clinic here, one of the only clinics here, which is licensed, authorized to prescribe um, psychedelic assisted therapies. How much experience do psychiatrists have with this? None. What do psychiatrists do? Psychiatrists mainly make a diagnosis and prescribe a tablet or a, a, an injection. That's what they do. The actual speaking medicine, the real medicine, is done by the psychologists and the clinical psychiatric nurses, not the psychiatrists. So the psychiatrist can zombify you or give you medication, uh, but the real treatment doesn't get done in the psychiatric clinic. It's done by the psychologists. So now we've given them the power to prescribe a drug. What are they going to do? They're going to give the drug and go and see a psychologist who maybe hasn't been trained on how to use the, the, the psychedelic, 
psychedelics properly. So are we going to get good outcomes? I doubt that. How much are they charging for this privilege of getting psycho, uh, MDMA in this clinic? 30,000 Australian dollars. For, for the treatment? Yeah, $30,000 to access the treatment. So only a very few psychiatrists have got access to this and the price is outrageous. Who's going to access it? What are the results going to be like? They're going to be very limited because we haven't given it to the right people under the right conditions. So we, we have a problem. So what are your thoughts in terms of who, uh, you've just talked about the psychiatric nurse and psychologist, um, and um, you mentioned before, which I want to kind of tease out, the integration aspect they're talking about, it, preparation and integration um, post the dosage, um, that the people still have the issues you mentioned before, um, the the serious things that are going on in their lives to weed out, to try to figure out, you know, a path toward wellness. And I wonder what your thoughts are. You just said about the, the psychology aspect of it, the actual integration post dosage is um, part of the craft and the, you know, mm. one of the big aspects, uh, significant aspects of the, um, of the craft. Yes. Uh, what are your thoughts on the model that is um, currently, which you've just really talked about just then, but and also what you think would be um, make more sense? Well, first, see why we've got barriers. People are frightened of the psychedelics because they, they might make you high. They might make you want to fly off a building. Well, psilocybin doesn't do that. MDMA, if you make it yourself in your backyard, there might be a problem. Clean MDMA, properly prepared, is quite safe. In the right dose, of course. So the question is, oh, we're going to make this available for people to get high. We've got six and a half thousand deaths due to alcohol every year in Australia. Uh, zero from cannabis. I don't know how many we get from psilocybin. Not a great deal, I'd imagine. Um, I, I think the results are zero, actually, but I, I, don't, I haven't got the, the, the facts in front of me. Um, so you'd have to question, you know, what's the purpose behind this? Why are you putting barriers up? Because ideally, what we want is people who are concerned about mental health, as uh, GPs, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, the other practitioners in the area who are concerned about mental health, I think it would be useful to allow a natural, healthy, healing herb to be used. Uh, but you need the training for it as well. So the mind medicine approach uh, to, to training uh, people who are psychologically skilled in accompanying people through the journey, that is a really good model. We ought to do that. The current psychology that we have uh, ubiquitously in our society, I don't think is very helpful. Say, take cognitive behavioral therapy, for example. I think it really makes a problem. People come to a psychologist and they're told, okay, tell me all your problems. So all your traumas are, are reawakened as you yet again have told why you're feeling bad. Maybe the third psycho psychologist you've seen because the last two didn't work. So now your feelings are, are, are raised again. And what happens then is, well, you're in a deep hole, aren't you? It's quite a deep hole you've got there. I'll tell you what, if we just put a bit of carpet in that hole, that makes it more come. How about you paint the walls white, a brighter hole, a few pictures in the wall? That's, it's a nice hole, hole, isn't it? Take some medication and come back in next week and we'll talk about how you can make this hole even better. That's, that's CBT for you. I, I don't know if you agree with that, but that's my impression. Been through. Whereas I want people to be out of the hole on the flat ground, looking at the horizon and going where they want to go. 
so my preferred module is a more neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. And I'd also be very much in favor of extending that into the hypnotherapy, uh, proper hypnotherapy, uh, where we people can get their subconscious working with them to actually get in a better place. That works only if you've got the medication to sort the brain out, the, the thought processes. And that would be a nice combination. EMDR, other approaches we could use. Uh, but the classical approach we're getting trained in now, don't even speak about Freud psychology, for example, that's, that's, that's nuts. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, so getting the proper psychology, which allows us to move out into the, into the future. Uh, the past uh, is a, a scar, which I value now because it's taken me into a better place than I was before. That's the approach I would want to use with the psychology. And the MDMA approach uh, is something I would, uh, so the, the, the Mind Medicine Australia approach is something I can heartily recommend. Uh, or follow the example of, say, Israel, where they're, they're using this with, with great success uh, with their, 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 their uh, uh, sadly oppressed uh, IDF and, uh, and citizens. Um, Access to the freely growing uh, psilocybin here ought to be made uh, unpunishable. It's growing, use it. It's like a tomato, pluck it, use it, but use it properly. So there's people around about here who are able to grow quite nicely varieties of psilocybin, uh, desiccate them, powder them and take them and microdosing for their own depression with wonderful effects. So it's making doctors actually unnecessary. Did you know, for example, I'm sure you do, that the SSRIs, antidepressants, are responsible for making people angry? And it's the thought that a lot of the, the, the mass murders in, the, in America are probably associated with people's anger as a result of taking their antidepressants. And, and that really worries me. How many people now with the road rage, uh, how many people are actually beating up their partners at home because they've they, they come back and there's been something not right. They've been angry and they've beaten their partner. Uh, I think we ought to reassess what we're doing with our medication and moving away from the poisonous stuff and getting more into the natural side, uh, which can, of course, be misused. But look, hey, now what's the problem getting high on psilocybin? What, what is the problem with that? What is the problem? You get a psychedelic experience. Um, you get these uh, fractal pictures. What's the problem? DMT? What is the problem? I mean, you're having a nice time. You're getting drunk on alcohol. No one's going to care about that. Why are you worried about the psychedelics if you're going to misuse them? But it simply gives us the opportunity, if we are going to misuse the psychedelics, that people can say, hey, there's a problem. You're trying to treat a problem. How can I help you? Let's have a chat. Sit down and let's see what's the real problem. And then we can use the medication better. And then we've got a, a, a topic of conversation. Rather than being, you shouldn't do this. You're a bad person. You're a druggie. Back off. Back off. You're trying to treat something that we haven't recognized. Guy, how can I help you? Yeah. As you were speaking, I'm, you know, I've, you know, obviously some of the controversial issues which you're teasing out, which is great. Um, I think if anyone even feels anger or frustration or of even hearing, you know, what you're saying, it's getting us to um, perhaps get some of the teasing out of some of these um, perceptions and trying to um, just give some other perspectives and you know i'm sitting here as well the you know the medicine approach which you said as is a, a an important component um and even the pharmaceutical medicines that are being used you know as an example um you know i have been on medication myself um on and off since uh 18 
um, when I was, um, you know, coming, uh, you know, so on a, a number of different antidepressants that some people, uh, my psychiatrist had said, um, has a, um, a poop out effect, <laughs> which is literally, it just sometimes stops, you know, stops working. Um, so I guess in the case of one, not even related to my sister, the notion of numbers of different medicines, um, and there has been some levity from that, um, some from depth of depression and kind of intense anxiety, but has its own hosts of challenges as well. I was just talking to someone um, at the gym earlier um, who, you know, she's coming off some medicine. I, we were talking about it openly and, you know, how the morning is so hard, the, you know, the kind of fog, um, you know, the hangover effect. And so there is debilitating, even in well, um, and I would consider myself generally well, um, but there's, you know, limitations to the medication of what is on offer at the moment. Um, and at the same time, those different paradigms and uh, sorry, um, psychological approaches, CBT, DBT, you know, ACT, you know, people um, just acronyms, but ways in which to um, modulate the mind and the challenges um, that in the brain um, you know, there is, and we talk about that default mode network, you know, of when that is not necessarily being aided by um, medication, pharmaceutical medication or other modalities. This is why psychedelic assisted therapy as a uh, conscious choice is um, is something that I'm exploring, but also just in general feeling that in the mental health system and the service system, even if it's some hope, I'm getting back to the hope versus hopelessness. Um, I wonder if in relation to hope and hopelessness, if you would mind maybe engaging a little bit about, so your son and my sister, so we have a commonality in a family member. And sometimes I know when I communicate it, it's almost a little bit like I'm talking about some other family. I, you know, and I know that can be some <laughs> disassociation, but in a very real sense, you know, what was, um, you know, he had access to different options, um, et cetera, like, you know, my sister did in different ways. Um, is there anything that you feel on from that hopeless point of view that um, I don't know that you've reflected on around your son? Um, yeah, because obviously access wasn't an issue. Well, might have been yeah. an issue in terms of options. Sorry, I just mean he was in the medical field. You know, he, he knew what he was going to do, and it's irreversible. Uh, and he did it very skillfully as well. So I won't go into details because I don't want people copying that. But uh, once that had been done, there's nothing you could fix that. Um, and dissociation, yeah, if you're not going to dissociate, you're going to cry when you, when you speak about it. So of course, this, we have to we protect ourselves because it's, it's going to be a, a matter of tears for well, a lifetime. Mm. Um, but one of the problems he had, and I'm sure this is in common with, with, with many people, is that he wasn't able to speak about this uh, at least not in a, a proper way. For example, he'd cut uh, his whole family out of his life. He blamed his family for the problems he has. And to some degree, he was right, uh, because the, the, the psychosocial situation he grew up in was not healthy for him. And the pressures he put himself under were, were not healthy. I discovered how much he tried to copy me. And this actually hurts me very, very, very intimately, because 
I found out you know, all of my little foibles, he'd actually copied and done better than me, trying to better his dad because he wanted to do it. You know, he thought I, I, I hadn't been a, a, as good a dad as I might be. And he was doing it better, being a better doctor than me. And he was. Uh, but he, he always considered he wasn't good enough. And he wasn't able to speak about this. And uh, his, his, um, it, was, it was very hard for him. And so he, he actually had no way out because he had blocked all the ways out. And if I'd been able, if I'd been able to connect with him and say, there's plenty of ways out, let me share with you. Because I, I have to be honest, I have in times of my life felt exactly the same. There's no way out. I must end my life. And I remember vividly and how, how threatening it felt. And then you realize, ah, no, there's ways out. There's ways out. And uh, so you take those paths. But uh, I, I recall very vividly how, how hopeless it felt. So having a, a, a glimmer of hope is absolutely essential for giving people a, a way to change their behavior patterns, to, to make different choices, which are ultimately what we need to do. Um, but in that situation, of course, when you, when you physically, mentally can't see a way out, there is only one way out, and that, uh, that is death. Um, and that's tragic. So uh, giving hope is essential. So going back to the medication, if I was to give, say, an SSRI for depression, I am going to be giving some measure of hope because that horrible feeling of, of hopelessness is going to be less. But I also fear that with such medications, the colors, the vivid colors of life, I mean, if you're seeing all black all the time because you're depressed, uh, anything else is going to be better. And people see life in terms of gray. So the beautiful, vibrant colors of, of existence uh, don't come through because you've been suppressed by these drugs. And if that's better than seeing all black, by all means, but uh, let's move on from that. Uh, so we're able to, so the medication I've uh, maligned uh, are actually very, they have their place, they're, they're useful, but they're not the answer. The answer is actually a lot deeper. It's uh, allowing the brain to function in ways which are more helpful to uh, becoming who you're supposed to be, who you're really meant to be, your, your mission in life, if you like finding out uh, there's this path that you can go down and that when you do leave this world, it'll be left in a better place. So there's this joy of living, even if it's a hard life, that you're <clears throat> doing something which you're meant to do and it's a good thing and you're happy doing it. Yeah. Getting hope. And I think you, you just touched on the um, connection part, which may now maybe make sense with what I was asking um, at the beginning. I know, uh, you know, asking about what you feel um, connected to and with, which you, you know, communicated about, you know, you first said that th when you were 13, so, you know, a, you know, a young person, um, already feeling that kind of, um, we call it Dharma and yoga, but, you know, the, you know, just that they're in you know, a purpose, um, life purpose. And when we are going toward our life purpose, um, we, um, things not necessarily go um, specifically as planned, but there's generally in the right direction. Usually we kind of can have a um, embodied experience. It kind of feels right, gut, gut instinct. Yeah. Um, and that notion of not being able to communicate, um, to not be able to communicate um, what we are experiencing as humans, um, you know, and you just aptly um, described also that there can be thoughts when we are feeling more hopeless um, around the not wanting to live. I think we have to communicate that a little bit um, more around it being existential or meaning that it, there's that you said you started today uh, talking about, you know, we've got 
to talk about some of these deeper, um, you know, purposes and meaning for life and which kind of is music to my ears personally, and I hope the um, listeners, um, but that it doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, there's this action um, taken. I know both of us have had an experience where that has did has occurred, but I feel the open communication around the aspect of not, you know, of feeling hopeless, which is why mm-hmm. we feel that then there is no other um, an- other way. So again, options, um, and you talked about, you know, kind of agency, you know, sovereignty. Um, the challenge is when, we, you know, one does not feel hope. Um, and maybe the mind uh, and the neurochemistry and the brain um, isn't allowing which you touched on as well and that default mode network areas of the brain that just cannot seem to um to shift i know that the psychedelic assisted therapy and this um itself um allows perhaps the not perhaps by evidence um a scene of our lives and an observing of what has occurred in our life experience from a different angle. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that or experience Ooh. you've had with that. Oh, that's deep. Um, I, when I'm talking, not to every patient, but when I'm talking to, to certain patients who are feeling this lack of hope or this, this pointlessness of life, I'll sit down and, um, it's a it's a cozy one-on-one and I'll come a bit closer and I'll say listen this is this is very curious I, I, I'm very curious to find out uh, you, you've described what's going on here and uh, I can see where you're coming from I can see why it's so painful for you but tell me tell me who are you and there's a kind of a blank look they've never been asked this before so who who are you and we get very into this. What do you mean, who? Take a moment, just think. Tell me about who, not just what you do, where you live, who are you? And I'm asking them to go deep into themselves and begin a a, a communication because there's two communications. One is with other people. How how are you doing? You know, what are you having for breakfast? You know, what happened yesterday on the footy? Okay, there's another communication with yourself. And this is a really, really important communication that the thoughts that we have, that there's talk we have in the back of our mind uh, colors much of how we see the world that the brain filter then comes into place and with that filter we then see what might be a beautiful object but we always look at as the rubbish under the the object we notice that not the beauty of the object so the brain can filter out the things that we choose to 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 focus on or uh, the other things that other people have ignored. This is the beauty of art, where an artist can see something that no one else has because their filter allows them to say, oh, that is gorgeous. And they bring that out. This is the, an art of living, an art of life. Who am I? Which leads on to the question of why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Because if I haven't got any purpose in life, then life can be very, very hard. There's a lot of things going on with that. So now we begin that conversation of not what can I do about my feelings, what medication can I give? It's what power can I take in myself to address? Have I actually understood who I am? And once I begin that process, that's a, that, that's, that's a journey. I don't know about your journey, but my journey has, has been very long, very varied. Uh, and uh, where I'm at just now, I'm exceptionally comfortable with that, knowing that none of this that I've, none of this ever exists. 
Uh, we are, one of my lines of my email uh, is that we are but a distortion of the space-time continuum. <laughs> now, then I'll go into people. I say, listen, if I'm, if I'm guiding them into a meditation, I will, I will do something like the following. I said, take a moment. Just think, just if you feel comfortable, relax your eyes, just settle down, take a few deep breaths as you did when we came in. And as you begin to settle in and you can feel the reassurance of that chair supporting your legs just perfectly. And as you do that, you notice your breathing is just right and just perfect for you and at a rate and a rhythm which is perfect. And as you do that, you might notice how the breathing comes in through your nose and out through your mouth. And as you do that, you might begin to notice the tip of your tongue against your teeth and be aware your subconscious is so much more aware of who you are. And as you do that, you can begin to focus on one part of your body where you feel maybe some discomfort. You can go into that part. I wonder where that part is. And they can show me maybe the heart. I said, that's fine. Go into that part now and look at that heart, which you're feeling is, is not quite right, and examine that. And you can notice if you look with the eyes of a microscope, the lining of that heart. And as you go deeper, you can look at the, the, the molecules of that and notice that there's two molecules of carbon there. They may have come from different stars, but just imagine one of those, one of those molecules and look at the protons and the neutrons, give them a color, if you will. And I go down deeper into that. And if you were to break one of those, Whichever one you like, then you break that apart and imagine the balls, the subatomic particles coming out. And you can see they've all got different colours as well. Go into one of those colours, the muon, gluon, baryon. I'll describe this in more detail, of course. And as you break that one apart and it comes even smaller, now you get the, the smallest particle there is. Just imagine there's a colour there. Go into that and break that final part. And what do you find? Is it a particle? No, it's an electromagnetic wave builds every as a structure of every single particle you've ever ever experienced i wonder what speed that that wave is traveling at <clears throat> the speed of light is it ah so basically <clears throat> you are <clears throat> this electromagnetic uh, distortion traveling at the speed of light coalesced into 3d reality right now so i can get them floating into space mm. there's understanding that all of, of what, what they are is actually a wave it's a vibration and all of the problems around about them are other people's vibrations. Let's see how we can focus and see, do I really need to worry about all these things? Because it's actually none of it really exists. So when I can come back into my person right now, now I can begin to see, I wonder what I can do to change the way I feel about things and how, what measures I may take. And so now we're seeing a different part of who I am. And that's a conversation we can have. It, it, not everyone can take that, but it's something I like doing. Well, you know, it, I mean, it immediately, um, immediately at some point, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> both can't be the same there. But what you get to is that in a way, the insignificant aspects, um, you know, and, you know, I know that Xavier Rudd song where, you know, go to the nearest water and re realize your place. Um, you know, a lot has happened before and after. And, you know, there does then allow some distance with what perhaps we we regard as um, our reality. So I can imagine that your patients, um, you know, really can benefit with that um, 
with that assistance. I think that, um, you know, when, as you're doing, as you were saying that, I was thinking of some, you know, someone who, you know, whereby no matter what anyone else is saying, they can't shift, you know, um, which is again, why these plant medicines um, allow some uh, difference in the neurochemistry of the brain, um, which most people have seen the, um, you know, the picture of, you know, where many more connections, we started this conversation about connections, more connections literally in the brain, um, and how that then, of course, through neuroplasticity kind of um, hopefully feeds on itself. So do you consider the, um, you know, what are you thinking in at this stage around the psychedelic assisted therapy um, you've commented about how the structure of the system just at the moment um, isn't necessarily quite right. And hopefully through time and effort and call to action, people um, will be able to continue to hopefully help maneuver the um, the possibility um, of life. Um, you keep repeating about even the challenges of um, what we might deal with, but that you know, they're um, the aspects that give us life enriching um, vibrations, if you will, mm. coming from what you had just talked about. And it's allowing how does that vibration, um, how can we get to a, a vibration where we can be more receptive um, and not lose these, you know, eight or more people, um, including, you know, our own family members, um, you know, which makes it very real. Um um, in terms of the service system, because you've got access both in the uh, health policy, excuse me, policy, um, let alone health policy, as well as being a medical, um, having a medical background and uh, an explorer, I take it yourself, um, of, of yourself. And I imagine you take on some of these um, experiences yourself for your own health and well-being, which is nice modeling. You know, we need more people um, in the field like you in that regard. Um, do you have some comments about, I know there's, it's varied, but in terms of the service system, how we might structure a, even a diagnostic system, um, that's something we've talked about before on this, uh, in these episodes, um, you know, people having four or five different diagnoses on lots of different um, medications based on that, you know, you might have, you know, ADHD, and then you might have bipolar, and then you might have um, generalized anxiety and depression. And some of the, and my own self, you know, diagnosed with, you know, generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. So these kind of senses of um, an aspect of what we've been diagnosed as and helped with why medicine is why I'm asking the question, but how maybe our diagnostic um, sensibility um, as the patient, but also as the practitioner, um, how we kind of contend with that and how you might, uh, and, you know, the legislation changer for two specific diagnoses, right? But we know that there's many, um, many more, and it's a very good start. Um, but I was just wondering, it was a roundabout way of asking you about how the service system, what are your kind of big issues in the service system um, and what you would like to see differently based on your experience to this day um, in your life? Well, the current system, uh, speaking purely about psychiatrists, uh, is, I think, very concerning. Right. 
First of all, uh, a lot of the psychiatrists are actually not well themselves. Uh, they've gone into psychiatry because they're treating themselves. I, th I see this quite quite a lot, actually. Secondly, is that the psychiatrists, at least nowadays, uh, are very much into the box ticking idea. Uh, you've got this box to tick, and we'll tick that, and that's what your diagnosis. This is your treatment, uh, and off they go to to, uh, to the different therapies. Um, so I don't really have a lot of trust in the current system. There, the medication that they've been given access to, I think, um, is not actually evidence-based. Uh, take a simple antidepressants, for example. This one works, that one doesn't. Uh, why not? They're both antidepressants. So you can try three or four antidepressants and they get the fifth one is actually going to be suitable for me. I feel better on that. Not great, but better. I've yet to see anyone who's cured with an uh, antidepressant. Take, for example, the uh, antipsychotics which are being used. And these are great ways of making people diabetic, uh, hypertensive, and uh, obese. Um, <laughs> because they, 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 they absolutely, <laughs> yeah, they absolutely are, are not helpful when it comes to your metabolism. So as a result, we, we're now, if you look into the psychiatric ward, you see people there who are being treated for a variety of physical problems caused by the medication they're given to treat the symptom. Many years ago, I was uh, studying psychiatry, was part of my rotation through general practice, and a lovely psychiatrist uh, who said to me, and I didn't get this at the time because I, I wasn't that far advanced, he says, I, I don't actually believe in the diagnosis of schizophrenia. So he thought it was, uh, he made the diagnosis, but he didn't actually think that he was actually doing the right thing. Now, um, I've seen plenty of schizophrenic patients since then, uh, and I think, well, there's certainly something going on with that. Uh, but I, I can get to his point. He, he doesn't understand what's really going on with that. So I think psychiatry is very much an art at the moment. There's not a great deal of science behind it. And I don't think the art is being carried out by true artists, if I could put that into that description. So when it comes to mental health, which is an increasing problem uh, being dealt with with a system which hasn't got the number of psychiatrists or the psychologists or the facilities for treating people with mental health problems, or indeed has the, the interest in fixing the psychosocial situations which cause mental health in the first place, thinking about, say, PTSD, of women who are being beaten by their partners who are suffering at work and they're taking alcohol. So the, the, whole, the whole issue there about uh, violence in society and trying to cope with something, a society which is concerned about them making money and I'm trying to survive and put food on the table. That is, that's a sure way of making people unwell mentally. So that, that, that is not being a, a dealt with. So we're going to get more and more of that with less and less facility in a, in a system there, which is basically falling apart. Uh, so I don't see good things happening. So what do we do in that case? I think the answer is we need to take this into our own hands. Those who care, those who can, should be given the freedom to act um, without the barriers being put up by, by people well-meaning but fearful people who are status quo thinkers. We need to put them to one side. You're causing the problem. You're making the problem worse. Go away uh, and let those who can deal with it. Uh, that, that, that's what we need to be working towards. I, I recall, oh, last year it was, I think, uh, when uh, the TGA was suggesting they're going to actually keep the uh, MDMA and psilocybin as Schedule 9, which basically prevents it from being used. And I made a very strong representation to the TGA there and saying, listen, I'm going to lay every single suicide uh, as of now, I'll place at your door physically with a, a cross uh, and you, the name, this person was killed by you inside. 
Um, and uh, I hope that helped to sway the opinions of the TGA. Okay, we'll make it S8 and deliver it to a few psychiatrists. There's been a small progress there, but you can see the pressure we've got to bring on the institutions to actually get out of the way and let people who can deal with the problem. So uh, there's a lot of people out there who know what to do, but are being prevented from doing it legally because of, of our, of our uh, organisations. That is what I'd like to actually see action uh, happening, because there's too many people suffering and not enough help is being given by people who know how to help. Uh, but I've gone off the target. I haven't, I haven't answered your question. No, you have. Um, and, and again, we're in a conversation. I think the important aspect is the um, back and forth. And there's an aspect that gets brought up. Um, and I'm wondering the moment, do you see these plant-based medicines you started at the very beginning of this of our conversation about not reaching the source of what is um, unwell. Um, you mentioned that, and um, are you? What are your thoughts on the plant based medicine? Are you? Do you consider the dosage um, as an example? Let's maybe stick with these um, psilocybin and MDMA because that is what is being potentially accessed in a new pathway. Um, do you have experience in terms of how you've seen the some of those root causes being um, being cured or at least significantly um, toward that direction of well-being that you were talking about? Yes, microdose psilocybin, I think, is my preferred drug of choice for depression. Uh, the problem, of course, is which psilocybin do you use? Because the different psilocybins have got different uh, potencies, and so uh, it's just a matter of knowing what you're taking. This is this is all you know uh, underground. It's all uh, grow your own or, or find your own. Nothing wrong with that at all. If you're going to take the more heroic dose for the, the, the psychedelic effect, now, the microdose doesn't give you the psychedelic effect. You know this, of course. Uh, but when looking at PTSD, we're going to need to get into the psychedelic state there and then accompanied by a proper uh, support. Now, generally, I'd be recommending people to see look, their healers, their shamans, if you like, who do, do go through a process. It's effective, but not as... Mm, not as professional as, uh, as Mind Medicine Australia is, is putting forward. So I, I, I regret that, but it's all we've got. The results I'm seeing are actually fantastic. I mean, PTSD cure is happening there. Now, this is fantastic because the root cause of PTSD, of course, is actually the, the amygdala is actually combining the, uh, the emotion and the memory. <clears throat> and that's an instantaneous uh, response. You can't fix that. You have to separate them. Now, you can do that with hypnotherapy to some degree, but using the, the appropriate uh, approach with the psychedelics uh, and the psychology is a very, very good way of fixing that. And that problem has now gone. You're talking about a cure. For the remaining ones, we can actually manage the symptoms with, with the psychedelic medication. So it's not hopeless. We've actually been to help you with this. Okay. Uh, I'm currently using quite a lot of uh, uh, cannabis, uh, especially with THC for managing uh, uh, PTSD. Now, that isn't a cure, of course. That's a symptom treatment. Uh, but uh, uh, So it's not the cure. But it does keep people going really well until we, they can access uh, the legal approach to, to psychedelics, which will be a couple of years. I have hope in the, uh, the, the natural plant-based medicine being the primary source of treatment. To get the brain functioning better, that the active person then uses what's in here, using the thought processes 
to make changes uh, that, that allow for different options to occur. Because it's all really about how we can manage our, our thought processes. Uh, and, but as long as the mind is being controlled out of our, out of our control with the, these, these horrible thoughts, we can't make any progress. So the plant-based medicine has to be the starting point, but not the end point. And I wonder just if you had anything else um, in terms of the integration um, part of um, the pathway that's going forward that is, um, you know, usually uh, three around the three um, sessions post dosage and also two sessions prior um, as best practice is for preparation. Um, and also, I just wondered if any of those preparation, as in um, selecting the person who is potentially going to be the uh, fit for the um, the dosage, either MDMA or psilocybin. So uh, the preparation, the dosage, and or the integration phase. Um, do you have any others, any comments around how you've you've touched on it already? But anything else you'd like to add around the kind mm. of treatment as a whole? Well, for the major PTSD, I think MDMA is probably the more effective treatment, although psilocybin is also very good. Uh, but it all depends on the quality of the psychology that goes with it. Um, I think at the moment having a, a protocol is useful, but the more experience we get, the more we uh, expand into the wide variety of, uh, of uh, patients suffering from PTSD, we're going to find that modifications will develop. Uh, and there'll be an improvement here. So as we get more experience, we'll be able to fine tune that or be able to make a, an assessment based on the history taking that this approach will have more effect than that approach. And so that, that's, that's, that's the exciting part to come. We've just started with this um, and uh, we, we, we need the more experience. For example, would DMT be a good starting point for this whole week? We don't know. What about uh, LSD? Should we be considering that? Well, yes, we should. Um, and uh, so having the courage to expand into these pretty useful uh, approaches. But you can't call it LSD natural, of course, but you know, it's, it's, it's a very useful, uh, a very useful uh, substance. Um, I, I, I do think that as we get more experience, as the, the current system gets out of our way and allows people to access uh, effective treatment, as the research goes on, and there will be research, we'll get better results uh, and more effective treatments, even more effective. And so I'm very hopeful for the future. But the, the, it's conditional upon the people who are currently in the way of getting out of the way. Yeah. And what about um, just from a kind of uh, thinking about family uh, carers, um, friends, the community, um, in terms of what can be done for people that are in this very, um, I mean, we haven't even said this word in this interview, interestingly, but, you know, the extent of suffering, um, which is a human trait, um, you know, as humans, we suffer, it's not a negative lens, it just is part of our reality and suffering being part of our life um, and how we might, I mean, it's interesting. People ask me this question a lot, but in terms of what can we do to support, um, to support, support someone who really is significantly suffering. And of wow. course you've got lots of, um, experience in that regard personally as well as professionally well 
That's a fantastic question. That the first thing I'd be suggesting is that we ought to stop taking alcohol. That always makes things worse. Family and friends. When someone has got a mental health problem, it's not just the individual. It's, it's the, the, the close family, the family, the relatives, the neighbours, society. Everyone is affected more or less by this. Um, so it's uh, it's time also to realise that not speaking about this, not sharing this, is a is a problem. It needs to be out there. Let's take an example of, say, the gay community back in the 1980s. I can't say we're gay. Rock Rock Hudson's a case of an point. You know, when he turned up with HIV uh, in the the 80s, all of a sudden, our male uh, 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 hero is is actually gay? Wow. And the the conversation then could start. Uh, And um, then we can get some healing. Then we can get some real progress. The same thing with mental health as well. in the old days, I mean, uh, if someone was put in the mental asylum, okay, we not speak about that person. No, they never existed. They're not part of our family. Uh, someone's got mental health problems, so there's some, mm, we're not going to, you know, it's a black sheep of the family. We can't mention this. And the, you're kept in the dark. You're, you're oppressed. You're suppressed. Uh, and we're not actually accessing the care because we're trying to hide things. So I think speaking about this openly, uh, but as an individual and also as someone who's affected by this, we ought to be comfortable mentioning this. But when we do now, we lose friends, we lose family. Uh, so th- that's, that's negative. We need to change that perception. Mental health affects all of us, either directly or indirectly. It affects all of us. We all need to pay attention to this. Uh, then once we've done that, then we can actually get together as people, uh, as, uh, as people who are affected by this and as family who are trying to support this. Because if you're managing on your own, it's so very hard we need to actually have people around about in a society which allows us to work with this. For example, if you've got someone who is mentally unwell and you've got a full time job to attend, how are you going to cope with that? When you leave for work and you wonder, are they going to be OK when I come back? What's going to happen to, to Uncle Fred? You, you need to have some measure of support in society for the people who are caring for those who are suffering. And that is a compassionate society. And we don't have a compassionate society. So we, we need to actually make some fundamental changes in how we behave as individuals and as a society. So that, but if I if you get a bottom line, just now the simple solution, speak, get together, support each other. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I really, I know we're going to um, close um, this interview soon. One of the um, intentions of, of this series, um, and I've said it before, comes out of somewhat of a, um, obviously personal experience, but from my end, but I know that's not unique, um, as well as um, a yearning um, and a longing for deeper, deep conversation. Mm. Now, sometimes went to some people, that's like the antithesis of what, you know, to have a deep conversation, it, it, it almost project it projects something that I might want, but someone else may not. And it would be the worst thing because whether by protection or whether just you're more a private person or just, you know, or not just confused, you know, mm-hmm. not and so I wonder what your thoughts are in galvanizing the community. Um, and I want to say toward the intention, which I had even this series of a deeper conversation, being candid, um, allowing it to percolate what um, what we can then use in our best ways toward our own evolution. Um, those in listening and, you know, who I'm speaking with and myself just wondered your thought on how to enable deeper conversation um, 
yeah, just what your thoughts are on that. And um, yeah, anything else that you would like to also share that hasn't been asked? Um, you do ask some very deep questions. Um, let's take a simple example of someone who's got a, a depressive illness and has given some, say, uh, SSRI for the depression. Are they really going to speak to their friends about the loss of libido? Okay. Are, are you going to then have a chat with your partner about, you know, why we're not actually having uh, sex intercourse as often or, or at all? Uh, and is it going to break up my relationship? Okay. Uh, that's not a question that people really want to speak about openly because it's all very private. Um, the same thing is also true about uh, if you're talking about how, how one of your family members is actually having a problem, for example, at school, not managing at school, but they've got to shine because they're going to be the next lawyer or the next uh, pharmacist. You know, uh, it's a very, it's difficult. So uh, one of the things that we ought to be doing is re realizing that your thoughts uh, are none of my business. Uh, so if you're saying something which I find challenging, that's not my business. I'll, what are you saying? I'll, ex I'll explore that. I'm not going to take it personally because your thoughts are your thoughts. And then we have actually, once we get the idea of allowing other people to have their thoughts, we can then have an interchange because I'm not going to be affected if you're saying something I think, <gasps> this is dangerous. Uh, it's a, a, a point of uh, let's get together and explore that further. Now, that's a very deep thing. Most people that I come across are very much more happy about speaking about last night's television or who's going for the grand final. They're, they're utterly unimportant things in this life. <laughs> they'll, have, they'll have conversations for hours about uh, who scored more uh, goals. Uh, uh, and, uh, and you think, why are you wasting my time? <laughs> I'm going to walk away from those conversations. But that's the majority of our conversations are very, very superficial. But how about if we get down and we're talking about, OK, um, so what, what, how are you feeling? Where are you going in life? What's the purpose in life? Tell me, uh, I'm thinking about my life. This is where I'm supposed to be and I'm having a hard time. So let, let's have a chat about that. No, we're not going to have that. Another beer, please. <laughs> so well, well, I just want to interject just slightly there because, um, you know, that is what you just said really um, shows the polarities there. And so how does one where the majority of people don't really want to go there um, or and I see, of course, um, of course, times and wanting that levity and just talking about things that are not, you know, who am I like the questions that you and I literally obviously um, are happy to communicate in that space. But what how do we you know, you're an, a politician. Um, how do we engage i mean australia for one as well i mean we're a sporting nation um and of course sport sport brings community huge significant aspects of um feeling uh connected and all of that so how do we how do we work with both of those toward maybe even a middle ground oh yeah and quite so. I mean, for example, I uh, used to be a surf lifesaver. So I'm actually thinking, should I train for swimming to Rottnest, the annual swim to Rottnest? That's just, no, I'm too lazy for that. But uh, uh, let's, let's take an interest in what's going on with that. And then we can share a point of view. So I think uh, we, there is always a place for a superficial conversation. Uh, let's say we're, we're passing by, you haven't got time to talk about things. Uh, the weather's ter terrible today. or You could then go on for conversation about climate change. Or you can then say, but it stopped my plans for tomorrow. So same weather, different different conversations to have. So the, the, the point is that I think we ought to become communicators. 
Uh, and uh, one of the important things about communicating is to listen to what the other person is saying, but also, did you know that most communication is nonverbal? Of course you know that. So what we're looking for here is signals. If I'm getting a signal from someone that they don't really want to communicate, that's fine. Okay, so we'll keep it like that. But I've got a signal out there saying, yes, I'm ready to communicate. If you're prepared to do that, we'll have a chat. So it, it's being, it's it a two-way process. Yeah, and um, I wonder as well, planting the seed. I know that, um forget which, it was on another podcast, but it was um, someone, I think it was, um, we can do hard things. And there was this, um, you know, the opportunity um, for some of us who are kind of in the head, in our heads um, quite a lot. Um, other people are in their bodies more. Some people are completely dissociated with both um, and don't have those questions, those deeper questions that you were initiating around, um, really it is around kind of who we are. And, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, I don't have a piece of paper at the moment, but, you know, who we are on paper um, versus what is going on internally. And I um, I know that from that, when I was listening to it, it was around sometimes my nature needs to be, I'm, you know, doing not so much in the brain, do, having a little bit more doing aspect um, is very useful as opposed to being in your head um, all the time. But yet the challenge is when you can be a doer and you're still all in your head, um, it's tiring. And I think there's an emotional exhaustion that I, I mean, I say this toward, you know, at the end of our conversation, but it's a real, um, you know, that kind of uh, when you work, sorry, utilized your day and you've exhausted your, uh, you know, your, the energy so much as opposed to like, I'm having this conversation with you and I'm consciously bringing that of how to, you know, fill your bucket as you're doing, as you're being purposeful in life. And um, I guess the last thing I was wanting to just say to you directly it's a lovely um it's been a great conversation um you know and going to that kind of depth um it has important um uh you know the energy that comes from that is um hopefully in some ways a call to action for anybody listening to we can all communicate um work on how we communicate and you also touched on the communication internally so you know Kristen Neff's work with um self-compassion I remember you know it must have been 10 years ago or, or bringing that to my attention and around the thoughts in the mind etc that you know had always been in for that kind of negative um negative reinforcement that would get me places you know um but at the same time allowing um yeah, allow that conversation and connection to both be in our external environment between people and so forth and communities, but, you know, really engaging in that self um, reflection, but watching how that reflection is, because often, mm. you know, if you're not well, that can be quite precarious. So I think that the opportunities you've talked about with psychedelic um, and plant medicine, psychedelics and plant medicine, um, brings hope. Um, it does. But also, uh, you're aware of the Blue Tree Project? The what? The Blue Tree Project? I am not. Well, that was um, uh, in WA, you find lots of trees which have been painted blue. Oh. 
And that's a sign. It's, it's gone worldwide, actually, but that's a sign there. It's okay to talk to your mates. And that started with a patient of mine who killed himself in Sydney, actually. And uh, so the, the, the devastated parents were, well, what, what do we do about this? And uh, they thought long and hard. And this young man had painted, uh, this is a farmer, he painted the, one of the trees in the backyard uh, blue to see if his father would notice. Okay, and that was uh, he and his girlfriend. That was a lovely thing. So they said, well, let's just paint a lot of trees blue and let that be a sign to people. It's okay to talk, you know, just, just say, just, are you okay? Just, it's okay to talk. A simple sign like that, just being aware that you can have a chat. If things are not going well, have a chat. And I just want to tease out this one other aspect because you brought it up earlier. In that communication of how we are feeling, you know, obviously big campaigns, Are You Okay Day, as an example, is fan, you know, fantastic even in its, you know, what it stands for. The notion of rehashing, you know, the, um, you know, I wanted just you to touch on that from a medical point of view and your insight around the difference, you know, wh- how are we get, are, how are we hopefully not feeding, airing um, to the point of um, impacting us to a, a great degree, but what your thoughts are on how we could potentially do that better? Because when we say communicating, that's very broad, but then coming to getting to the heart of, hmm. um, yeah, getting to the heart of what is going on versus um airing everything oh. <laughs> airing our dirty laundry everywhere <laughs> when you repeat things you're just re-traumatizing yourself and it's not doing any good uh, i very often when i'm dealing with my ptsd patients here i'm not going to go into why they've got ptsd you've got ptsd fine let's deal with this uh, so i'm not going to ask them to repeat what happened when the ied went off and blew their mates legs off okay and something they see every day um so rehashing that, all that does is reawaken those horrible visions. Uh, tell me how your mother beat you, uh, or, or your father was drunk all the time and uh, beat your, your mother and yourself. All that does is just to reawaken those terrible memories. There's no point in doing that. Uh, what we need to do is focus on, on how we're going to fix the, your mind's processes. Uh, you know what's going on there. You don't, don't want that. Okay, how are we going to regain control? How are we going to actually help you to, to recover from this? This rehashing again and again with different psychologists and psychiatrists, I think is quite detrimental. It may be necessary the first time so you understand what's going on, but otherwise uh, it's just not a, not a helpful thing to do at all. And patients fear that. This is why they don't like changing psychiatrists or psychologists because they know they're going to have to go through the whole thing again. And it's just not good. And I hope that then the psychedelic assisted therapy in its, um, at least in the hopeful sense, um, and with the clinical evidence that is being shown, that that is what is able to pierce the mind, um, the mind's capacity to, to shift and then self-heal, which is what you started um, about self-agency yeah. and so forth. Well, it's been an amazing conversation which I could speak to you all day um, about hopefully it's not the end um, of the conversation Um, I if there is anything else that you feel you'd like to share with listeners regarding um, anything that um, perhaps hasn't been asked well just a simple word there's always hope there's always choice don't give up wonderful place to finish on thank you Brian it's a pleasure (laughs) 